Chapter 50, Part 7 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. Chapter 50, Part 7. The Good Sense of Mohammed despised the pomp of royalty. The apostle of God submitted to the menial offices of the family. He kindled the fire, swept the floor, milked the ewes, and mended with his own hands his shoes and his woolen garment. Disdaining the penance and the merit of a hermit, he observed, without effort or vanity, the abstemious diet of an Arab and a soldier. On solemn occasions he feasted his companions with rustic and hospitable plenty, but in his domestic life many weeks would elapse without a fire being kindled on the hearth of the prophet. The interdiction of wine was confirmed by his example. His hunger was appeased with a sparing allowance of barley bread. He delighted in the taste of milk and honey, but his ordinary food consisted of dates and water. Perfumes and women were the two sensual enjoyments which his nature required, and his religion did not forbid and Muhammad affirmed that the fervor of his devotion was increased by these innocent pleasures. The heat of the climate inflames the blood of the Arabs, and their libidinous complexion has been noticed by the writers of antiquity. Their incontinence was regulated by the civil and religious laws of the Koran. Their incestuous alliances were blamed. The boundless license of polygamy was reduced to four legitimate wives or concubines. Their rights, both of bed and of dowry, were equitably determined, and the freedom of divorce was discouraged. Adultery was condemned as a capital offense, and fornication in either sex was punished with a hundred stripes. Such were the calm and rational precepts of the legislator, but in his private conduct Mohammed indulged the appetites of a man, and abused the claims of a prophet. A special revelation dispensed him from the laws which he had imposed on his nation, the female sex, without reserve, was abandoned to his desires, and this singular prerogative excited the envy rather than the scandal, the veneration rather than the envy, of the devout Mussulmans. If we remember the seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines of the wise Solomon, we shall applaud the modesty of the Arabian, who espoused no more than seventeen or fifteen wives. Eleven are enumerated, who occupied at Medina their separate apartments round the house of the apostle and enjoyed in their turns the favor of his conjugal society. What is singular enough, that they were all widows, excepting only Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bekr. She was doubtless a virgin, since Mohammed consummated his nuptials, such as the premature ripeness of the climate, when she was only nine years of age. The youth, the beauty, and the spirit of Aisha gave her a superior ascendant. She was beloved and trusted by the prophet, and, after his death, the daughter of Abu Bekr was long revered as the mother of the faithful. Her behavior has been ambiguous and indiscreet. In a nocturnal march, she was accidentally left behind, and in the morning, Aisha returned to the camp with a man. The temper of Muhammad was inclined to jealousy, but a divine revelation assured him of her innocence. He chastised her accusers, and published a law of domestic peace, that no woman should be condemned unless four male witnesses had seen her in the act of adultery. In his adventures with Zaneb, the wife of Zaid, and with Mary, an Egyptian captive, 
the amorous prophet forgot the interests of his reputation. At the house of Zaid, his freedman and adopted son, he beheld in a loose undress the beauty of Zainab, and burst forth into an ejaculation of devotion and desire. The servile, or grateful freedman, understood the hint, and yielded without hesitation to the love of his benefactor. But as the filial relation had excited some doubt and scandal, the angel, Gabriel, descended from heaven to ratify the deed, to annul the adoption, and to gently reprove the apostle for distrusting the indulgence of his God. One of his wives, Hafna, the daughter of Omar, surprised him on her own bed in the embraces of his Egyptian captive. She promised secrecy and forgiveness. He swore that he would renounce the possession of Mary. Both parties forgot their engagements, and Gabriel again descended with a chapter of the Quran to absolve him from his oath, and to exhort him freely to enjoy his captives and concubines, without listening to the clamors of his wives. In a solitary retreat of thirty days, he labored alone with Mary to fulfill the commands of the angel. When his love and revenge were satiated, he summoned to his presence his eleven wives, reproached their disobedience and indiscretion, and threatened them with the sentence of divorce, both in this world and in the next, a dreadful sentence, since those who had ascended the bed of the prophet were forever excluded from the hope of a second marriage. Perhaps the incontinence of Mohammed may be palliated by the tradition of his nocturnal or prenatural gifts. He united the manly virtue of thirty of the children of Adam, and the apostle might rival the thirteenth labor of the Grecian Hercules. A more serious and decent excuse may be drawn from his fidelity to Khadijah. During the twenty-four years of their marriage, her youthful husband abstained from the rite of polygamy, and the pride or tenderness of the venerable matron was never insulted by the society of a rival. After her death, he placed her in the rank of the four perfect women, with the sister of Moses, the mother of Jesus, and Fatima, the best beloved of his daughters. Was she not old? said Aisha, with the insolence of a blooming beauty. Has not God given you a better in her place? No, by God, said Mohammed, with an effusion of honest gratitude. There can never be a better. She believed in me when men despised me. She relieved my wants when I was poor and persecuted by the world. In the largest indulgence of polygamy, the founder of a religion and empire might aspire to multiply the chances of a numerous posterity and a lineal succession. The hopes of Mohammed were fatally disappointed. The virgin Aisha and his ten widows of mature age and approved fertility were barren in his potent embraces. The four sons of Khadijah died in their infancy. Mary, his Egyptian concubine, was endeared to him by the birth of Ibrahim. At the end of fifteen months, the prophet wept over his grave but he sustained with firmness the raillery of his enemies, and checked the adulation or credulity of the Muslims by the assurance that an eclipse of the sun was not occasioned by the death of the infant. Khadijah had likewise given him four daughters, who were married to the most faithful of his disciples. The three eldest died before their father, but Fatima, who possessed his confidence and love, became the wife of her cousin Ali, and the mother of an illustrious progeny. The merit and misfortunes of Ali and his descendants would lead me to anticipate, in this place, the series of the Saracen Caliphs, a title which describes the commanders of the faithful as the vicars and the successors of the Apostle of God.
the birth the alliance the character of ali which exalted him above the rest of his countrymen might justify his claim to the vacant throne of arabia the son of abu talib was in his own right the chief of the family of hashim and the hereditary prince or guardian of the city and temple of mecca the light of prophecy was extinct but the husband of fatima might expect the inheritance and the blessing of her father the arabs had sometimes been patient of a female reign and the two grandsons of the prophet had been fondled in his lap and shown in the pulpit as the hope of his age and the chief of the youth of paradise the first of the true believers might aspire to march before them in this world and in the next and if some were of a more graver and more rigid cast the zeal and virtue of ali were never outstripped by any recent proselyte he united the qualifications of a poet a soldier and a saint his wisdom still breathes in a collection of moral and righteous sayings and every antagonist in the combats of the tongue or the sword was subdued by his eloquence and valor from the first hour of his mission to the last rites of his funeral the apostle was never forsaken by a generous friend whom he delighted to name his brother his vice-regent and the faithful aaron of a second moses the son of abu talib was afterwards reproached for neglecting to secure his interest by a solemn declaration of his right which would have silenced all competition and sealed his secession by the decrees of heaven but the unsuspecting hero confided in himself the jealousy of empire and perhaps the fear of opposition might suspend the resolutions of mohammed and the bed of sickness was besieged by the artful aisha the daughter of abu Bekr and the enemy of ali the silence and death of the prophet restored the liberty of the people and his companions convened an assembly to deliberate on the choice of his successor the hereditary claim and the lofty spirit of ali were offensive to an aristocracy of elders desirous of bestowing and resuming the sceptre by a free and frequent election the koreish could never be reconciled to the proud preeminence of the line of hashim the ancient discord of the tribes were rekindled the fugitives of mecca and the auxiliaries of medina asserted their respective merits and the rash proposal of choosing two independent caliphs would have crushed in their infancy the religion and the empire of the saracens the tumult was appeased by the disinterested resolution of omar who suddenly renouncing his own pretensions stretched forth his hand and declared himself the first subject of the mild and venerable abu Bekr. the urgency of the moment and the acquiescence of the people might excuse this illegal and precipitate measure but omar himself confessed from the pulpit that if any mussulman should hereafter presume to anticipate the suffrage of his brethren both the elector and the elected would be worthy of death after the simple inauguration of abu Bekr, he was obeyed in medina mecca and the provinces of arabia the hashemites alone declined the oath of fidelity and their chief in his own house maintained above six months a sullen and independent reserve without listening to the threats of omar who attempted to consume with fire the habitation of the daughter of the apostle the death of fatima and the decline of his party subdued the indignant spirit of ali he condescended to salute the commander of the faithful and accepted his excuse of the necessity of preventing their common enemies and wisely rejected his courteous offer of abdicating the government of the arabians after a reign of two years the aged caliph was summoned by the angel of death in his testament with the tacit approbation of the companions 
he bequeathed the scepter to the firm and intrepid virtue of Omar. I have no occasion, said the modest candidate, for the place. But the place has occasion for you, replied Abubekr, who expired with a fervent prayer that the God of Mohammed would ratify his choice and direct the Mussulmans in the way of concord and obedience. The prayer was not ineffectual, since Ali himself, in a life of privacy and prayer, professed to revere the superior worth and dignity of his rival, who comforted him with the loss of empire by the most flattering marks of confidence and esteem. In the twelfth year of his reign, Omar received a mortal wound from the hand of an assassin. He rejected with equal impartiality the names of his son and of Ali, refused to load his conscience with the sins of his successor, and evolved on six of the most respectable companions the arduous task of electing a commander of the faithful. On this occasion, Ali was again blamed by his friends for submitting his right to the judgment of men, for recognizing their jurisdiction by accepting a place among the six electors. He might have obtained their suffrage, had he deigned to promise a strict and servile conformity, not only to the Koran and the tradition, but likewise to the determination of the two seniors. With these limitations, Othman, the secretary of Mohammed, accepted the government, nor was it till after the third caliph, twenty-four years after the death of the prophet, that Ali was invested by the popular choice with the regal and sacerdotal office. The manners of the Arabians retained their primitive simplicity, and the son of Abu Talib despised the pomp and vanity of this world. At the hour of prayer he repaired to the mosque of Medina, clothed in a thin cotton gown, a coarse turban on his head, his slippers in one hand, his bow in the other, instead of a walking-staff. The companions of the prophet and the chiefs of the tribe saluted their new sovereign and gave him their right hands as a sign of fealty and allegiance. The mischiefs that flow from the conquests of ambition are usually confined to the times and countries in which they have been agitated. But the religious discord of the friends and enemies of Ali have been renewed in every age of the Hegira, and is still maintained in the immortal hatred of the Persians and Turks. The former, who are branded with the appellation of Shiites, or sectaries, have enriched the Mohammedan creed with a new article of faith. And if Mohammed be the apostle, his companion Ali is the vicar of God. In their private concourse, in their public worship, they bitterly execrate the three usurpers who intercepted his indefeasible right to the dignity of Iman and Caliph, and the name of Omar expresses in their tongue the perfect accomplishment of wickedness and impiety. The Sonites, who are supported by the general consent and orthodox tradition of the Mussulmans, entertain a more impartial or at least a more decent opinion. They respect the memory of Abu Bakr, Omar, Othman, and Ali, the holy and legitimate successors of the Prophet, but they assign the last and most humble place to the husband of Fatima, in the persuasion that the order of secession was determined by the degrees of sanctity. An historian, who balances the four caliphs with a hand unshaken by superstition, will calmly pronounce that their manners were alike pure and exemplary, that their zeal was fervent and probably sincere, and that, in the midst of riches and power, their lives were devoted to the practice of moral and religious duties. But the public virtues of Abu Bekr and Omar, the prudence of the first, the severity of the second, maintained the peace and prosperity of their reigns. The feeble temper and declining age of Othman 
were incapable of sustaining the weight of conquest and empire. He chose and was deceived. He trusted and he was betrayed. The most deserving of the faithful became useless or hostile to his government, and his lavish bounty was productive only of ingratitude and discontent. The spirit of discord went forth in the provinces. Their deputies assembled at Medina, and the Charigites, the desperate fanatics who disclaimed the yoke of subordination and reason, were confounded among the free-born Arabs, who demanded the redress of their wrongs and the punishment of their oppressors. From Kufa, from Basra, from Egypt, from the tribes of the desert, they rose in arms, encamped about a league from Medina, and dispatched a haughty mandate to their sovereign, requiring him to execute justice or to descend from the throne. His repentance began to disarm and disperse the insurgents, but their fury was rekindled by the arts of his enemies, and the forgery of a perfidious secretary was contrived to blast his reputation and precipitate his fall. The caliph had lost the only guard of his predecessors, the esteem and confidence of the Moslems. During a siege of six weeks his water and provisions were intercepted, and the feeble gates of the palace were protected only by the scruples of the more timorous rebels. Forsaken by those who had abused his simplicity, the helpless and venerable caliph expected the approach of death. The brother of Ayesha marched at the head of the assassins, and Othman, with the Koran in his lap, was pierced with a multitude of wounds. A tumultuous anarchy of five days was appeased by the inauguration of Ali. His refusal would have provoked a general massacre. In this painful situation, he supported the becoming pride of the chief of the Hashemites, declared that he had rather serve than reign, rebuked the presumption of the strangers, and required the formal, if not the voluntary, assent of the chiefs of the nations. He has never been accused of prompting the assassination of Omar, though Persia indiscreetly celebrates the festival of that holy martyr. The quarrel between Othman and his subjects was assuaged by the early mediation of Ali, and Hassan, the eldest of his sons, was insulted and wounded in the defense of the caliph. Yet it is doubtful whether the father of Hassan was strenuous and sincere in his opposition to the rebels, and it is certain that he enjoyed the benefit of their crime. The temptation was indeed of such magnitude as might stagger and corrupt the most obdurate virtue. The ambitious candidate no more aspired to the barren scepter of Arabia. The Saracens had been victorious in the east and west, and the wealthy kingdoms of Persia, Syria, and Egypt were the patrimony of the commander of the faithful. End of chapter 50, part 7